You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Well, if you were here last week with us, we showed a video of Claire Dickey. It was her story of coming to faith in Christ. Many of you watched that video online this week. Uh, One of my, or not one of, my favorite line in the video is when she says, I had heard the story of Jesus before. I had heard that he came for us. I had heard that he died so that we could be forgiven. I had heard that all a million times. But then I really heard it. And when she says that line, then I really heard it, you can see the emotion on her face. Tears welling up in her eyes and a smile coming across her face because it was such great joy in this reality that all these things that she had heard about God, as if from a distance, all these things that she had known about God had finally become real to her. God had become real to her. It's so simple but it's powerful. When we see that kind of thing, we want it. And I want you to know that God wants that for you. Like right now, he's here, he's with us, and he longs to make himself real to you today. I think that's why he gave us the Psalms. We're spending our summer preaching through various Psalms. And the Psalms are simply a collection of songs and poems and prayers, they contain very deep truths about who God is, but they communicate those truths in very emotive language. We need the Psalms. If God is to be real to us, then we need words and images that connect the truth of who God is to our affections. We need language that moves us, and the Psalms do that. They give us a language for life with God, the kind of life you can feel that's real to you. And perhaps no psalm does this better than the one that we're looking at today, Psalm 23. Uh, This is one of the most famous psalms, maybe one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture, and for good reason. Uh, It's a very simple psalm, but its imagery is really rich. It kind of works with the metaphor of the shepherd and the sheep. And this is David's own story. He at one time was himself a shepherd, and so it's very personal, and that comes through in the poem. You'll notice where he says, not not just that God is a shepherd, but God is my shepherd. You'll see about halfway through in verse 4, if you're looking at it, you can see the language shifts a little bit. It shifts from third person to first person. So in the first few verses, uh, God is his shepherd. He makes me lie down. He leads me. He leads me in paths of righteousness. It's good. It's just all third person. But then in verse 4, there's a shift. In verse 4, he's in the deep valley. He's in a place of of danger and darkness. And the language switches to you, which rings true, doesn't it? Isn't it in your toughest times, times where you really feel stretched and threatened that you draw near to God? So beginning in verse 4, that's all the language. You are with me. Your rod and staff comfort me. You prepare a table for me. It's a very personal psalm. There's also just phrases that we love 
like in verse 5 where he says, or maybe it's verse 6, where he says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. We don't even have to know what that means. It just sounds like something we want to be true. It sounds really good. I like that following me everywhere all the time. Psalm 23 is a psalm of confidence, a psalm of trust, and that's why we love it, because we want to feel that way. We want to feel confident about God. And so that's our aim today. Our aim is to simply meditate on this poem. Uh, Meditate means to chew on. So we want to like chew on these words and take them in to us so they might help us feel the way David feels about the Lord. There's one primary big thing, and it's right there at the front. The Lord is my shepherd. And then David gives us a few things that God's sheep say. Like when God is real to you, these are things that you feel and that you say. And so I just want to walk through them today. Here's the first thing. God's sheep say, I lack nothing. And verse 1, you'll see it translated... Uh, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That word can be a little confusing. It means to not be in want. Uh, Many translations translate it, I lack nothing. I think that captures the meaning of it well. Of course, there are desires. There are things we do want and that are fine to want. But that's not what he's saying here. He's saying, I have everything I need. I lack nothing. I just wonder how many of you feel that way right now. Like, deep down in your gut, if you were to say to yourself, I lack nothing, does that feel genuine? (laughs) Or does it feel like positive talk? (laughs) Like, I know it's not true, but I'm going to say it anyway. God wants you to feel that today. And wouldn't that be so liberating to walk out of here today saying, I lack nothing? When I was in college, I was part of a campus ministry, and We had this Bible study training class thing that met at this house. The house belonged to two of the women who were on staff with this ministry. And uh, it worked out really well because they had like no furniture. It was just a big empty living room. And so we just ordered pizza in boxes and sat on the floor and had class. And I remember after one of these classes, uh, Jen was sitting in this rocking chair drinking some tea. And I made some stupid comment. Imagine that. It had something to do with how they had nothing, you know. And... uh, And Jen just replied, and she said, well, I don't know. I have a rocking chair and a glass of tea and students I love. What more could I want? And she didn't say it, like, directly to me. She was kind of looking off in space, like she was talking to herself or maybe to God. And just just observing it, I just, I knew that she meant it. It had a deep impact on me, that little simple moment. Partly because I wanted to live a life like that. I wanted that kind of contentment. But also because it was really shocking. I don't think I'd ever heard anybody say something like that. It's certainly not the story that our culture is telling. Our culture is telling us that contentment comes through getting a little more. So if if you could just get that house, that job, or that spouse, then your life would be good. If you could just travel more, then you would find what you're looking for. If you could be successful, then you wouldn't have to worry about anything. That's the story our culture is telling. The shepherds of our day lead us down the path of contentment through acquisition. 
but the good shepherd leads us a different way. The path of contentment through acquisition, as it turns out, is just a treadmill. You spend lots of energy and you get nowhere. Listen, houses, travel, success, those are all good things. It is okay to want those things. But acquiring any one of them, acquiring all of them, won't bring you to the place where you say, I lack nothing. It's not because they're bad things. It's just because they don't have the capacity to grant you that kind of contentment. You were made for something much greater. Those things cannot possibly fill the deep longings of your soul. Only God can do that. Sinclair Ferguson said this, Contentment is about having no higher ambition than to belong to the Lord. You need to hear this. Contentment is not the the casting away of ambition and desire. It's not devoid of ambition and desire. Just the opposite. Contentment is to have more desire, more ambition, but for the right thing. Contentment is to make your highest ambition to belong to God because when you have God, you have everything you need. You truly lack nothing. That's the basis of our contentment. And this is where the element of trust comes in. Because how does the sheep really know that he lacks nothing at any given moment? Right? The sheep has moments of, of need, moments where he's in danger. And so in those moments, how does he really know that he has everything he needs? Because he trusts the shepherd. He knows that he never lacks anything that the shepherd thinks is good for him. There may be all kinds of things he desires and wants and that is fine, but he knows deep down that there's nothing he lacks that the shepherd thinks good for him. That's where you find contentment, true contentment. If you want to be able to say, I lack nothing, you first have to say, the Lord is my shepherd. Look at the images he gives to describe his experiences with the Lord. Verse 2. He says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. So the, the task of the shepherd is to find grass for the flock. So he finds grass for the flock. But the image, notice what's peculiar in the image. He's lying down. Sheep don't eat lying down, right? They they eat standing up. And so what's going on here? He's already eaten. He's eaten and now he's laying down like on the couch after a good meal. He's satisfied. This sheep is fat and happy because he has a good shepherd. He leads me beside still waters. Uh, You might see in footnotes in your Bible that these are waters of rest. So it's just another idyllic image of contentment. I'm fat and happy and I'm at rest. I'm refreshed. So the Lord gives us rest and he invites us into it. He gives us what we need and he says, just just enjoy it for a little while. I think there's a, a very strong correlation to the Sabbath day. The Lord created men and women to work. He, does the, he tells them to work. 
But then he gives them a day of rest. Even in creation, even when they have no need, so to speak, they're fat and happy, they're to rest. Sabbath is just this one day a week where you put your doing down and you remember who your shepherd is. You remember that the Lord really has provided for you. You remember that you can't control the outcomes. You remember that your well-being really isn't all up to you. And there's something about remembering those things that helps you just relax, to put your doing down and to be, and to think about the Lord as your shepherd. Verse 3, he says, he restores my soul. My soul is just a word that means my strength or my life. And so the image here is one of a shepherd rescuing and restoring the life of one of his sheep. I did a little reading about sheep this week. It's not a thing that I think about every week. Um, There's a thing called a cast sheep. You know what that is? It's when a sheep has fallen over on its back. And so this happens when they just fall off balance or they lay down and there's a little depression in the ground and maybe they're carrying a little too much weight and they just kind of roll over. And it's kind of a pitiful sight. Sheep's on his back and his legs are just flailing in the air. He's nothing he can do. He's helpless. He needs someone to come restore him, to save his life. Because it's a dangerous situation. It's funny to look at, but then you realize in a very short time, the sheep can die in this position. If somebody doesn't come and roll that guy up on his feet, he's going to die. One of the reasons that a shepherd is constantly counting his flock It's because he's trying to make sure that one of his sheep hasn't wandered off somewhere and become cast. In Psalm 42, David says to himself, Why are you downcast, my soul? And some suggest that when he writes this, he has this image of the cast sheep in his mind. David is talking to himself, his soul is cast down, he's stuck. We would say he's in a spiritual funk. He's distressed. He's, he's, um, He's helpless. He needs someone to come restore his soul. He can't change his situation himself. He can't even change the way he feels about it in and of himself. He needs someone to come. Have you ever felt stuck like this? Sort of feet wailing in the air? Some of you are stuck in the rut of discontentment. I mean, you just keep chasing contentment through acquisition or contentment through comparison. And it isn't working. And over time, the disappointment turns into bitterness, cynicism, self-pity. If you've ever been stuck in those things, you know they can just suck the life right out of you. And you get to the place where you feel helpless in them and you need someone to come restore your soul. So what do you do when you're stuck like this? Well, in Psalm 42, this is what David says. He asks the question, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? And then he gives the answer. Hope in God. He's telling himself to do this. Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. 
This is what we do. If you're stuck, hope in God. Have confidence that you will praise Him again. He is your salvation. If the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. That's the first thing the sheep say. Here's the second thing. You'll see it in verse 4. The second thing is, he says, I will fear no evil. Look at verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. He's in the valley of the shadow of death. It's what it sounds like. It's a very dark, dangerous place. Down in the valleys and the canyons, that's where the water is. That's why the shepherd would lead the sheep down there in the first place. But because that's where the water is, then that's also where other animals are, predatory animals. And the undergrowth and the shadows and the rocks give these wild animals good places to hide from which they can pounce on the sheep. If there is any place that a sheep should be afraid, it's in the valley. It's in the canyon of darkness. But he's not afraid. Why? For you are with me. He says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Uh, The rod is a a weapon that the shepherd would use to fight off attackers. A staff, his staff could be used to correct and redirect the sheep. Uh, This sheep knows that the shepherd is strong and he's prepared to take on whatever threats come his way. So even in this dark, dangerous place, I'll fear no evil because you're with me. Wouldn't that be a liberating thing to say? I'm not afraid. Like, wouldn't you love to walk out of here today and just say, that's a weird feeling. I'm not afraid. God wants that for you. He's a good shepherd. This statement is not that he has never been afraid or that he will never be afraid. It's a confession of trust. It's like he has this moment of clarity, this moment of like, being in the rocking chair with a glass of tea and people you love. And in that moment, he realizes that the Lord is his shepherd. And, and all, even though there's all kinds of things that are worthy of being afraid of, he's not afraid. He has no reason to be afraid if the Lord is his shepherd. He sees that the Lord is with him. When a, when a young child is afraid, what do they do? They call out for mom and dad to come And when mom comes into the room and sits down with the child, the child's fear subsides. It's not because his circumstances have changed at all. It's just because mom is with him. He may have imagined, he heard some sound, and may have imagined some great monster in the closet. That monster is still there, but now someone stronger than the monster is there with him. And so he's not afraid presence of mom, the presence of God comforts us. It brings us to the place where we can say, yeah, I'm not afraid. This is the sense of the image in Psalm 23. Though danger and evil is all about, someone stronger is with me. But how do we know that God is with us? I mean, 
really? How do we know that? Because he's promised to be with us. Hebrews 13, Hebrews 13.5 says this, Be content with what you have, and this is his reason, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That phrase, I will never leave you nor forsake you, shows up throughout the Old Testament. I just this morning counted it in at least seven different books of the Old Testament. The, the people of God comforted themselves with this phrase over and over. The Lord, he said, he'll never leave us nor forsake us. Can't look at all of those, but I do want to read some of them because it's really compelling. First Chronicles 28, 20. Uh, David is talking to uh, Solomon, his son. Solomon's to build the temple. He's got work to do. And this is what David says. Be strong and courageous and do the work. Don't be afraid or discouraged for the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not fail you or forsake you until all the work of the service is finished. In Deuteronomy 31, Moses tells Joshua, he's passing off the baton to Joshua to take over the land, and he tells Joshua, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Isaiah, in Isaiah the Lord says, the poor and needy search for water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst, but I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. And then the shepherding imagery comes in in Isaiah 42. God says, I will lead the blind by ways they have not known. Along unfamiliar paths, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness into light before them and make the rough places smooth. These are the things I will do. I will not forsake them. It is so compelling if that sinks in to your soul. That if the most fundamental belief you have about you is that God is with you and for you and will never leave nor forsake you. It gets better. God is with you and he is for you and you can't change that. You can't make that reality untrue because it doesn't depend on you. It depends on God. Look at verse 3. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Verse 1. Then he says, the Lord is my shepherd. I, I won't be afraid. I have no reason to be afraid for he is with me. And then he says, he leads me into paths of righteousness for his name's sake. This is what it's about. The emphasis in this verse is on God and his righteousness. David is saying, God is committed to leading me because of who he is, not not because of who I am. He's committed for his name's sake. God's name is who he is. It's his character. It's his reputation. It's his glory. And so why is God so committed to David and to all of his sheep? Because of his glory. He keeps his promises for his name's sake. That's why he can't go back on, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. Ezekiel 20 is probably the best example of this. In this chapter, God is recounting all the disobedience of Israel. It's a pretty fun chapter. (laughs) Actually, it's really sad. And there are great consequences for their disobedience. They've been taken into captivity. But 
over and over, we also see God's mercy toward them. And the reason he's merciful toward them is not because of them. It's for his namesake. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'll I'll paraphrase a little bit, but I want you to listen for the refrain in the story. Ezekiel 20. God said, I told them to cast away the idols of Egypt and that I would be their God. But they rebelled against me and they were not willing to listen to me. Then I said, I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. That's what they deserved. God could have done that justly. But, he says, but I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived. So God was bringing Israel out of Egypt, and he said, if I forsake them now, then the nations that that saw me reveal myself to them and deliver them, what will they think of my name? My name's at stake. My reputation's at stake. My glory. I will act for the sake of my name. It goes on. The house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. And so I said, I would pour out my wrath upon them in the wilderness to make a full end of them. That's what they deserved. But I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations. And I said to their children in the wilderness, do not follow the footsteps of your fathers. Follow me. I will be your God. But the children rebelled against me. Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the wilderness. But I withheld my hand and acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations. Later in the chapter, God promises that he will bring all of his people back from all the nations where they've been in captivity, like like a shepherd rescuing the cast sheep and gathering them in. And this is what he says. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will accept you. On the front end. You will remember your ways and all your deeds with which you have defiled yourselves, and you will loathe yourselves for all the evils that you have committed. Look at this scene. God gathers them in. He accepts them, and they feel the tremendous weight of guilt and shame. They've got to wonder in that moment, did he bring us in to slaughter us? And this is how he ends the chapter. You will know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake. Not according to your evil ways, not according to your corrupt deeds, O Israel, declares the Lord God. God's commitment to lead us is rooted in his commitment to his own glory. And that brings so much assurance to us. We are sheep that wander astray, but God brings us in for his name's sake. That kind of love, that kind of perfect love, John says, casts out all fear. When you experience the love of God like that, you you say from the bottom of your heart, I'll fear no evil. How do we know that God really does love us like that? Well, Paul says God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were helpless, cast, 
Christ died for us. Jesus tells us this is what he came to do. Listen how he plays off the imagery of Psalm 23 in John 10. Here's what Jesus says. He says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I have known the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus went in to the valley of the shadow of death. He was torn apart into pieces like like a sheep in the teeth of wild animals. He cried out for Father to come to him, but there was no response. No presence of the Father. He endured this suffering for us. He laid down his righteous life for us. He went down into the valley so that we might be gathered in. But Jesus came out of that valley. On the third day after he had died, he rose from the dead. And when he did, he gathered together his disciples, and you know what he said to them? Go. I will be with you to the end of the age. Wherever we go, whatever happens to us, we can say, the Lord is with me. The sheep of God say, I lack nothing. I'm not afraid. And here's the last thing. In verse 6, he says, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's, let's read from verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy. And this word goodness and mercy is actually the word hesed, which is the word steadfast love. This is the thing that the people of God clung to all throughout Old Testament history. The steadfast love of God. Surely your steadfast love shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I'm not going to say much about these verses because they really just sum up the implications of everything that's come before. These two verses paint a picture of a great feast. The Lord is the host, and we are given a place of honor and blessing and favor at his table. He's prepared a great feast for us. Oil on the head is a sign of hospitality. Uh, it's It's a symbol of honor. A cup that overflows is a symbol of of satisfaction and great joy. This is a great feast. And then, here's the conclusion, I think, of all his meditations about the Good Shepherd. All the things that he's thought about, about him being with him, about him preparing a table for him. Here's the conclusion. Surely, if the Lord is my shepherd, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And this word follow is not strong enough. It means to chase, to pursue. It's a wonderful image 
No matter where the sheep wanders off, no matter what we get ourselves into, the goodness and the mercy of God chases us down. When we're in need, he comes running to our aid. When we are threatened, he comes running to our defense. And he will never not do this. It's who he is. He is goodness and mercy. He is committed to us for the sake of his name. He will always follow us all the days of our life. At this table, this place of blessing and favor with God, he says, yeah, I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. For all my days and for all eternity, I will never be able to escape the provision and the protection and the presence of my God. Let's give thanks. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.